The second lesson is from the first letter to the Corinthians, the first chapter. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In our reading from 1 Corinthians today, Paul assures those new Christians that they have everything they need. And Christian, I say to you today as well that you also have everything you need. And yet, we're not only speaking about material possessions when we say that, although we often don't live as though we believe it. No, I think actually the time has come to be more careful in the way that we think about having what we need and the ways that we still say to God, I need more. First, some background. Corinth, as you may know, was a very rough place. It was a city famous for, shall we say, loose living. Uh, This was a wild and woolly bunch of pagans uh, to whom Paul preached, and by the grace of God, uh, some joined the fellowship of believers. But both of the letters to the Corinthians read as Paul's most challenging. His letters reveal that he is constantly putting out fires among this group, resolving conflicts. He has to justify his authority. He's warding off a would-be super apostles. And he's basically just trying to keep this church from falling apart. If ever there was a pastor who doubted whether his congregation would survive or wondered whether he had thrown his pearls before swine, it had to be Paul. And yet, his letter begins with a very clear message. Christians have everything they need, and so do you. He writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. So the first thing that he says is given is grace. Now, what would these Corinthians have thought that grace was? 
Well, it's possible, of course, this was a mixed congregation of both Jews and Gentiles. Of course, Jews had scattered throughout the world at various diasporas. Um, I would suspect that given Paul's teachings that the Jews would have thought that grace was the end of the temple sacrificial system, that grace was the free gift of God uh, given uh, without the Mosaic covenant anymore. For the former pagans in Corinth, they perhaps would have come to see that they no longer needed to fear their pantheon of gods. In fact, they had the grace to know now that the gods that they worshipped and sacrificed idols to or, or sacrificed to and such, well, they were in fact false gods. They weren't even real. It was grace that these gods didn't exist, and grace that reconciliation with the true God was already won for them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You also already possess uh, much grace, and not just the grace of your sins being forgiven, although that is of greatest importance, but understood as any undeserved gift or favor are we not surrounded by grace? We live in an age of relative peace and prosperity, certainly. Imperfect times, to be sure, but better than many of our forefathers and foremothers could have imagined. I recently, for example, watched a, a documentary about the one-child policy in China that's been enforced for now several Generations Now they have a two-child policy, so the same propaganda techniques used for the one-child policy, they've just switched over to the two-child policy. But really, uh, well over a billion people then, perhaps billions of people, have been subjected to sheer lies about the benefits of frankly killing children or preventing them or selling them to the highest bidder. No, we watch something like that, and we should be, and we are, I think, aghast uh, at such a thing because it's foreign to us. And because it's foreign to us, that is grace. Number two, what else did these, spir or these uh, Corinthians have? Spiritual gifts. Paul writes, For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in 1 Corinthians, later, we have the longest teaching on the spiritual gifts anywhere in the New Testament, chapters 12 through 14. And so Paul here is foreshadowing that he's going to be addressing that conflict, which is the use, proper use of the spiritual gifts. And most of that deals with, you know, prophecy and its related gifts of tongues and perhaps healing. But the reality is every Christian believer has spiritual gifts. And while the gifts of tongues or healing or prophecy are the only things we ever want to talk about, there are many other gifts lifted, uh, listed in the New Testament. For example, mercy, to be a merciful person, is a spiritual gift. Administration, if you're one of those neatniks and organizers, it's a spiritual gift, believe it or not. Generosity, 
faith, discernment, teaching, many more. You are a gifted person. God has commissioned and positioned you to do things that no one else can do. Your gifts are needed in the world. And whatever God has called you to do, he has also gifted you to do those things. And if God has not called you to do something, then you probably ought not to be doing it. And of course, we don't just mean in the church, but we mean in all the vocations of your life. Another gift, he will strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's sort of pithy to say that God will never give us more than we can handle. Well, certainly in the Christian life, we are sometimes dealt very difficult blows. We heard of one already this morning. There will be hard moments for any Christian. But what Paul is saying is that we will persevere until the end. If you have been called, then you will be justified and sanctified to the very end. That is a promise. You will be blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, all of those gifts should be enough for us. But we know how this goes, right? They're not. We always find ways of wanting something else, something beyond the promises of God, uh, something more, and we get creative in ways that we look for something more. As I said, we could only talk about material possessions, of course. That would be rather easy. But I want to go a little bit deeper. I want to address something I've never really talked about before, and I think it's time the church start to address this. In fact, I think we're 20 or 30 or maybe even more years too late. And that's how do we relate to the previously unimaginable technological world that now surrounds us? How should we, as Christians, use or ignore or throw off or speak against certain technologies? When do uh, AI, right, artificial intelligence, or certain medical advancements compromise our ethics? We're living in a time, of course, when, you know, it's a cliche, but the technology is changing every day, right? And with more technology comes greater promise, longer life, better health, instant access to all kinds of information. You know, we're all experts on everything now, right? Uh, more connectivity, at least that's the promise of technology. I'm not sure that's really worked out. But I think the time has come for the sake of our Christian witness and for the sake of our own souls, we need to be more circumspect with how we relate to technology and maybe even speak against some advancements. Christians must begin, I think, to withdraw, maybe not from the Internet or social media, although maybe those, uh, but certainly from those aspects of technology that are increasingly changing what we understand reality to be. Right? What is even real anymore? How do we communicate to the world, for example, that we are content with what God has given us, the gifts that God has given us? Because technology is pushing 
you know, the boundaries of reality very quickly. A few examples. It may not be long before our memories can be digitally stored, taken out of our mind, put on a computer somewhere, and uh, projected, right, uh, for all of eternity. There are many people starting religions right now based on eternal life in the cloud, right, uh, affected through a computer server. Now, I, I happen to think we'll never have adequate knowledge of the mind to actually do that, but there are many people who do think it's possible and will be soon. Christians, as an example, reject any perpetuation of life in a cloud or otherwise, and I mean the technological cloud, except that as found in Christ. So part of our witness might be to say, if technology like that becomes available as we get older, you know what? I'm okay dying in the hands of Jesus. Thanks, but no thanks. I don't need your eternal life on a computer. It may not be long before our lives are extended or our bodies augmented using technology. Maybe we've got a computer for a brain or mechanical limbs like, uh, you know, the Terminator. Or maybe we alter uh, the genes of our children before they're conceived or even while they're still in the womb. Christians reject advancements, I believe, that communicate that our bodies, as they are, are not good enough. And we should accept our children as they have been given to us. Of course, I understand the slippery slope here. You could say, well, should we not take aspirin then? Because doesn't that change, you know, and not to mention more complicated drugs? These are difficult topics. I'm saying we need to start thinking about it now. Virtual reality is upon us. I think this one's a little easier. Virtual reality, it offers us the possibility of walking through the loo from our couch. Okay, great. That might be as far as we should accept it. Historic museum tours only. We should begin to speak against, I think, relating to others or being in community with people solely over a computer or maybe worse, being in a relationship with an AI creation. That might be the most dangerous aspect of new technology. AI will soon allow us to form relationships uh, using technology and and we'll create people made in our own image, right? Our friends and even those more than friends. They'll, They'll end up being narcissistic visions and versions of ourselves, not the partners that God has given us to live with in family and in community. Many, many more examples could be offered. That doesn't even speak to the wisdom of avoiding more screen time or turning your phone off or being in intentional personal communities. I sort of take those as givens, though we need to talk about that too. My point is that when we keep welcoming technological innovation, we need to be careful not to denigrate the world or the body or the eternity that we have been promised. And one way, then, that we can witness to the world as Christians is rejecting at least some technological advancement. My encouragement to you is to take an inventory of the technology in your own life and ask what can be taken away or what is limiting you or what might take you down a wrong path if continued. For the Corinthians, 
It was pagan temples and meat sacrificed to idols that still served as temptations. For us, maybe it's the god of technology that promises wisdom and experiences and happiness. We say to the world, technology does not offer those things to us. God does, through the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.